or Christian Learning Center out of the Grand Rapids area. Okay, I am here representing them today. We went through a rebranding and had our official kickoff at the start of the school year of a new name called All Belong. So if you hear All Belong, just think CLC um, Network. So thank you um, for being here today. My name is Pam Mott, and when I work with children, I used to go into um, the classroom to introduce myself to them with a little three-pack of Mott applesauce. And just about every time, I'd be going down the hallway after doing my little talk to a classroom, and there'd be some cute little girl that would be going, oh, 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 I know you, you're Mrs. Applesauce. Yep. Hello, how are you and what's your name? So anyway, um, we all go by lots of names, right? So I just got done talking about um, positive behavior, um, a little talk on that. And I got thinking as I walked in and I saw this you know, slide that I had up for um, this little talk and I thought, hmm, I guess, I mean, I knew I was talking about behavior both times, but it just kind of hit me like, oh, I'm talking about behavior the whole morning here. I wonder why I was asked to talk about behavior. Other than we know that behaviors have only gotten more complex and more apparent in their classrooms than they were when I first started teaching. Although, as I reflect on that little comment, I um, spent my first seven years teaching, and I've always been in the field of special education, so I graduated from Calvin with a special ed um, degree, and then went on to Grand Valley and got a few different endorsements um, through them and a master's in learning disabilities, and so I've used that education, thankfully, my whole professional life, and I spent my first seven years at Holland Public in a middle school, never thought I'd teach middle school, um, always pictured the cute little kids, not the kids that I had to look up to because they were taller than me, right? And I honestly learned the most in my whole teaching career in that first year. I had a tough group of 18 students, which was against the law, so we had to get a um, waiver because you're really only supposed to have 15 students when you have a special ed self-contained classroom. And I remember so distinctly, I'm in my room, I'm getting it all decorated, you know, it's the week before school starts, and a better teacher walks into my room and introduces herself to me, and she says to me, well, Pam, I have some good advice for you. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I need this. I know I'm a rookie. I need advice. I said, and? When those kids start to show their true colors and they start misbehaving, you have got to just speak up. You have got to get the attention of administration. That's my advice. I'm thinking, well, A, that's not real helpful. B, aren't you a downer? I was hoping for some, like, truly helpful advice, right? But it did kind of get me shaking in my boots because I thought, would she be saying that if this was like an easy group of students? Probably not. So I'm thinking, what am I in for? So I am going to be very transparent here, and I did this really with only one other group, and we were in a 
smaller classroom, and I could see them, and the look on their face when I told the story made me go, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have told that story in this setting. It was with the Catholic school. I'm not anything against Catholics, but I wanted you to have the context that it was a private school. So I thought, should I share that here? And I thought, well, huh, there's some safety here. I can't really see your faces. But I share it only to let you know that we have all walked a different road. We have all experienced kids that push our buttons, kids that challenge us. And John Maria was one of those students for me. John was very intelligent, but John had one of the most significant learning disabilities to this day that I have ever met in a student. John also had some significant social, emotional challenges. He was cuter than he could be though. I thought, man, if I were a seventh grade girl here, Yep, and he knew it, and he was charming, and he knew it, and yet on just about everything, he would push my buttons. And one day, I obviously, I had just reached my limit, and as I am trying to calm him, I go, John, you gotta cut this, S-H-I-T, I said it, out right now. My students were never more quiet in all my teaching years. And I'm looking at them like I'm looking at you, and I'm replaying in my mind, and I'm thinking, oh no, I didn't just think it. <laughs> I actually said it out loud. Well, what am I going to do? I am so glad there's no one there to take a picture of my face, because I'm not sure what it looks like. And I took a deep breath, and I said, I, I'm gonna go over to my desk right now, and I need to spend a little time thinking. You must have something in your desk that you can do. Get it out right now and do it. And I turned around, and I sat down, and I remember putting my head in my hands, and I thought, how am I gonna get out of here? How am I gonna get out of this? I can't go to a mentor teacher, there's no mentor teacher. My assistant's not in the room to bail me out. She always would bail me out of anything, it seemed like. I got to do this on my own. So I took another deep breath, and I got up, and I looked at my students, and I said, I am incredibly sorry. I am embarrassed, and I was wrong to use that language with you guys. I'm so sorry. And I just stopped and I looked, tried to look at all in the eye. I had everybody's eye contact. Everybody, even John. And then I turned and I looked right at John. And I said, John, I'm most sorry to you. However, your behavior is not acceptable. We will be talking about that later today. And I turned around and I went back to my desk. I know God gave me those words. Because in that moment, that was the last thing I wanted to say to John. I wanted to blame John. I wanted to tell him, if you hadn't done blah, 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 I wouldn't have lost it. 
but I know God helped me control myself. Flash forward, go forward several, several years, and I'm in Chicago with the Chicago Teaching Center. And I'm working with several of the teachers in inner city Chicago. And I'm there talking about behavior, talking about how the brain works and whatever it is. And I shared something along this line, I didn't go quite into detail, that story. And later, this, one of the participants came up to me and she says, do you know what that was? Do you know what you did in that moment? I'm thinking, mm, yeah, I apologized. And she said, there is power in an honest apology. There is so much power in that. And what you got to remember, she said, is most kids who most need an apology never hear an apology. Instead, but they need apology, the power of apology. And she goes on to share with me about her book. So much of what I'm going to share with you comes right from her book, Safe Within These Walls. Um, you can get it on Amazon, at least the last time I checked. This book has made such a difference in my life. And I thought, oh, where was this when I started teaching? I needed it then. It is so simply written, and it is so powerful about how to de-escalate students. I do some work for Hope College for Grand Valley with student teachers, and I supervise them. And that is the biggest thing I try to drive home to them, that the win is about keeping a student de-escalated. The win is not getting a student to follow every one of your rules or the school's rules. Because some kids simply are not ready to be able to follow all of those. The win is to keep the student in school, in your classroom, in a de-escalated manner. But that is not an easy thing to accomplish. And when I work with different teachers in different areas and pockets around Michigan and outside of Michigan, that's the hardest part, is to convince us <laughs> that sometimes it feels like the kid is winning. I'm just buckling, I'm giving in. And I'm here to help you to understand that you have to meet kids where they're at. You know that academically. If you're gonna teach multiplication and they don't have addition down, it's gonna be tough to teach multiplication. You know academically you have to get them to understand what's the prerequisite in order to get to the new skill. The same thing is true with behavior. That sometimes we have to let go of some expectations or some standards for behavior in order to meet the student to move them forward. Quickly, my learning targets are that you will understand the signs of escalation that you will be able to articulate some techniques for addressing student behavior, that you will be able to identify the stages of escalation, and that you can verbalize a guiding question. That all belong, we talk a lot about this process. It's so simple and yet so profound. What do I see? And then what do I think? And then what am I going to do? If you shortcut this process, it's usually on the first step of what do I see. It's very important that we as teachers have opportunity to really, 
observe students who have challenging behaviors in multiple settings if we really want to be able to help them. If you have to want to be able to help them because it's hard work. And then we use a neurodevelopmental framework to guide what we see to interpret it into what do we think is happening neurodevelopmentally. Where does it fall? What's going on in their brain? What do we think? Because that then informs and helps us to figure out what do we do. Far too often early in my years, it was I saw a little something and I quick made a judgment, not an informed thinking, because I wanted to get to the do. By nature, teachers are doers, and they want to get to the do. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And we also sometimes have parents in our years come, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Administrators, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? But it takes time, and those steps are important. So when does of opportunity, good times and bad times to talk to kids. If you're going to talk to a student about their behavior, there are some really bad timing. It's about timing. Okay? We know that. I know that as a spouse. There might be something I want to talk to my husband about. There's a good time and there's a bad time. And in the heat of a discussion, it probably isn't the time to point something out that, of course, I'm right about. You know? Timing is important. Optimal, there are optimal times to intervene. If you're going to do some kind of a behavior step, there are optimal times. Think about that. Is this the time to do it? If there is a fight, there's an opportunity to work with the same kids to prevent future incidences. So if there was some kind of altercation, don't give up. Look for that time again where we can try and make a difference. And also that aggression often smolders for a long time before it erupts into any kind of violence. We hear that a lot in the news, don't we, of where there was school violence, that they end up talking to people who say, oh, we saw it coming, we saw the signs, and we ignored them. So the brain, the brain will work. You need to work with the brain, not against it when you're working with behaviors. You have to work with the way the brain works, not against it. The human brain does malfunction in predictable ways when in a conflict. And I'm going to be going through those steps of escalation. You can see where a student is once you know what the steps of escalation are. And we're going to then use that kind of knowledge for good effect. So what do you see in these pictures? What words come to mind? Just jot them down. What words come to mind when you look at some of these pictures? Or just say them to yourself. Likely you already know this, I'm sure you do. All behavior is a form of communication. If you raise children, you know in that first year the difference between your son or daughter's cries. Especially every mother knows this. You know when they're hurting. You really have to get there and see what's going on. You know the cry of, I just want you to know I'm here. I want a little attention. You know the cry of hunger. It's communication. That's part of their behavior. So all behavior is some form of communication. There's always a reason for problem behavior. There's always a reason. 
That's what we want to figure out. What is it? There can be many reasons behind a specific behavior. Adults can learn to understand and interpret children's challenging behavior. You can understand it. And children's challenging behavior can be reduced with support, not necessarily with punishment. Punishment tends to more often increase the negative behavior than it does to change that behavior. Do you remember Parkland, Florida? And I could put up other incidences where an escalating behavioral situation student ended badly. Fortunately, at least to my knowledge, I'm not aware of, and if anyone is here, speak up, of any of our private schools that have experienced what some of our neighboring public schools have. And yet, it's on us to think it couldn't happen. In fact, as I get around to different ones of our private schools, more and more of them have implemented the same type of security practices that our public schools have, and we should be. We should be ready. And yet, you know this, and thankfully so, that we have a strong partner who is always with us and who is equipping us. And yet, we are responsible, and God expects us to be ready, to be prepared. One of the first signs of an escalating student is what the author of this book, or what, excuse me, John Gottman, and she refers to it, is it's called flooding. That when people are stressed, a wash of adrenaline floods the brain and physically disrupts circuitry. That when a student in your classroom, even yourself, when you begin to flood, it's a chemical reaction that you cannot control nor stop. So first of all, that's the one thing you have to know about the human brain. That you, I know you have students in your schools for whom they're at risk because they're operating with a brain that is flooding that that adrenaline, and it's not a round-the-clock kind of thing, but they're at risk because of multiple reasons, likely. When a student is flooding, it's like when you're talking to them, you could just as well be talking to a wall. Angry kids, it's not that they don't listen, they actually can't listen and take in what you're saying and process it. I'm going to just do a very, very quick personal example, one that's very vivid in my mind, of when my brain was flooding. And it wasn't exactly what we're talking about here in that I was misbehaving, so my brain was flooding, but it's an example of what happens with a stressed brain. And as educators, we have to remember that a flooding brain does not receive a spoken message. So almost 10 years ago, well 10 years ago to this day, my daughter was in the special care unit at Spectrum Hospital, pregnant with twins. 
She was only in week 25 of her pregnancy and had been hospitalized for three weeks already. And I remember being up there to visit her on a Thursday night, my husband and I. And we went, of course, every day. But this, this Thursday night is so etched in my memory. And she was dilated almost to a six. Week 25. They're pushing to get to week 26. And the docs told her, she had three specialists on her case, told her, Abby, when you are dilated to a six, it's no longer your decision. But we want you to know that we have the OR ready for you. The NICU has two little beds ready for your babies. And what was very interesting through this whole process was that the, my daughter and, uh, and son-in-law did not want to know the sex of the twins. And everyone on the case honored them. It's amazing that nobody let it slip or she or he came out of their mouths. And I share that only because when they said to her, when you're at a six, it's no longer your decision. We will take the babies. And they said, in fact, whenever you're ready. If you're ready right now, Abby, we're ready. And she, oh, she's feisty. And she like gripped her teeth and she said, you're not taking my babies. You are not taking my babies. I will go 10 rounds. And she was miserable. She had been on a um, strong muscle relaxant for almost a week, which made her internally really, really hot. So she was always hot. We literally sat in that room, in her room, with our winter coats on, and they brought us heated blankets because it was so cold in her room. She was miserable. I was frantic. I know I was frantic. My brain was highly stressed. And one of the specialists came up to me. I was a big guy, big doctor. And he says, Mrs. Mott, hope for girls. A little bit later. He comes back, remember, are you hoping for girls? A little bit later, are you hoping for girls? Finally, I go, fine, fine, why do you keep saying that to me? He goes, because statistically, girls do better. They're stronger when they're born. They will have a better opportunity to survive. Okay, okay, fine, I'll hope for girls. Do you know it wasn't until like three months after the girls were born that that came back to me? That my brain finally processed it and I thought, well, that was bizarre. Hope for girls, that happened at conception. What good does hoping do, right? That's not going to change the sex of the baby. And then I thought, oh my word, he was trying to give me a message because they were girls. And he was trying, he saw how frantic I was. And he knew too that Abby's looking to mom for lots of cues. And he was trying to calm me down. And I took it and I said, okay, I'll hope for girls. While not catching the implied message. That's a stressed brain. That's happening in your classroom. That's happening when you see a student escalate. So you have to keep in mind that no matter what you say, you're Charlie Brown's teacher, right? Wah, 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 And the kid can be going like this to you, like they, they're taking it in, just like I did, and I didn't take it in. Now, I'm going to just quick end the story because I know somebody here is going, so what happened? So what happened to the babies, right? They were born at week 26, two days. They were both under two pounds. God was amazingly gracious to them. They will be 10 years old on November 5. And they're amazing. And there's nothing other than weak lungs. You know, they have a propensity to have breathing problems if they get a cold or they have a propensity to pneumonia. But God is amazingly good. 
You're talking to a wall if a brain is flooding. You're also talking to somebody who magnifies something. So if you were to say to them, if you don't get to work, you know, we're going to have to keep you in for recess. What are you saying? You're going to keep me in for recess for the rest of the year? Right? They magnify everything that you say in a flooding brain. Here are some signs of flooding. They're going to be highly reactive. They're unable to settle down. So they're agitated. They're clingy, possibly. They want to be right by you, especially the youngers will be that way. Unfocused and scattered. You might be thinking, oh, that's half my class some days. Well, this one is going to be more heightened with it. Um, as an aside, the PowerPoint is on the CEA website, so you can access that if you haven't already. So how do you recognize if a student is flooding? Their facial skin will show signs of it. Sometimes they look a little more pale. Sometimes they might have ruby red cheeks that you can tell something's going on. Okay, They're more clumsy or jerky. They may be walking into kids, bumping into kids, not intentionally. There might be loss of some small muscle movement. Maybe they can't hold their pencils well. Um, the worst thing to do is to yell or to snap at a student that you think is flooding, that's starting to escalate. Flooding is that first stage. Yelling and snapping is only going to increase the escalation. So, what do you do? What do you do if you think a student is flooding? Have you ever heard of mirror neurons? It's a real thing. You model what you want the student to do that's flooding. I didn't say you tell, you model. Now you can put words with it, but the actions is what the brain will pick up. The brain does pick up what it sees and processes that before it will process any words. So, if you want the student maybe to take some deep breaths, you just start breathing deep. And do that a few times. And if the student doesn't do it with you, then just say, breathe with me. Breathe with me. Part of that, too, catches the student by surprise. Not very often when they're showing they're angry does someone come up to them and say, breathe with me. It can work for them to model what you are doing with a calm manner. You must have a calm body to help them calm down. Another thing that can be really, really helpful for a student that's flooding that you think is going towards a meltdown. Work the large muscle groups. There's different ways you can do that. Uh, one of the things I have suggested to teachers that's, uh, and we're talking about a specific student, say, always have on one of your countertops or on your desk a stack of heavy books. Help them to use their big muscles. And you might say something as simple as, oh my goodness, I can't talking to the student. I can't believe, you know what I forgot? Mr. Smith asked if he could borrow my encyclopedias or stack of Bibles or these songbooks. Whatever your stack is, would you do me a favor, please, and take these down to his room? First of all, you've distracted the student with something that they are not expecting, but then they're going to use those large muscles and it will help. You can have them do arm push-ups. 
against the wall. Just have them go up. And you know what? You could have the whole class do this. This is a great little brain break. But it's really targeted for this one student to see if you can get the student to calm down. We're going to all do our wall push-ups right now. So if you haven't taught them how to do it, you're going to teach them right in that moment. Okay? For secondary students, it might be you're going to just ask them to go to the gym. Maybe you say go to the office first, but you have it set up in the office. You say you need to go see so-and-so, and they know that they need to somehow get them somewhere where they can walk or they can run or they can do something. You're going to have to be creative. Okay? Um, so is it working? How can you tell? Well, the eyes are going to be more clear. Listen to their voice. Their voice is going to sound more normal. Listen to their speech. They're going to be more clear in their speaking. Another thing that works really well is distraction. Try a distraction rather than a consequence. Okay? Try to do something that's going to throw them off or surprise them. So some... Um, let me just go back here a minute. Some distractions that you might try is with younger students, you could do it with the whole class if you want. You know, do a little clapping thing. Do what I do. Do something that just is totally opposite of what's going on. Help them to try to forget maybe that they're angry at something. Um, tell a joke. Always have a joke ready. Or maybe a riddle. Something that will just distract them. So know the symptoms for you to know what the symptoms are with the purpose that you can teach students about it. So if they feel like their head is pounding, you might ask them, you might just approach them and say, is your head pounding? Listen to their breathing. Which gives a sign that then their heart is pounding. Can you feel your heart racing? They, you might ask them, are they thirsty? Because your mouth is going to go dry. What do your fingers feel like right now? So if you just have a little index card with these little questions, that's going to verify for you that they are flooding. But you can teach them that too, so that they can start to do some calming techniques. You need to know that you flood as well. So when I had my moment, and I said what I said to my class of 7th and 8th grade students, my, my brain started flooding immediately. The thing you have to know is you have to take care of yourself first. So intuitively I knew I needed to return to my desk and get my act together before I said something to John that I knew I didn't want to say. So you have to take care of your own flooding first. Other techniques to distract is, is humor. Maybe break out into a silly song if you're comfortable doing that. Send the child on an errand, okay, that will distract them. Or, you know, say something really unexpected. And often you have to prepare for this. Have something at the quick ready. Here's a guiding question. Would you rather be right or be effective? Would you rather be right or be effective? When I read this in this book, I decided that I needed to adapt that question in all of my relationships. 
And I have really found as a wife, this has been really effective. Because far too often when my husband and I are in a little argument or a tip, it becomes about Pam being right. And that doesn't work so well. Because I'm not always right, or I don't understand something. What I want to be is effective. Do you rather be right or effective? Far too many teachers, far too many of us get into kind of sticky situations because it becomes about me being right rather than what really is going to be most effective. So think more on that one. There is silent flooding, so it may not be that a student is verbally flooding, but can be silently flooding within themselves. And there are different ways to manage that, and I'm just going to move on here a moment. Body language is huge. So only 2 to 5 to 25% of the spoken language is actually received, where 75 to 95% of what is seen, what the body language is, is the message that most students that are flooding are going to pick up. In fact, whether you're flooding or not, you pick up the tone and you pick up the body language before your brain processes what is being said. Keep that in mind. I know there's been different times, and I'm sorry for using myself, but my best example to me is early in our marriage, we, we were chatting a little bit about something, and I didn't agree. And my husband said, well, you don't have to get mad at me. And I said, I'm mad at you? What did I say? Oh, that wasn't what you said. It's the way your face looks. Well, first I was really insulted by like that. Like, I can do anything about the way I was born. This is my face. You know, it's that expression. You get that look, Pam. That appears to me right here. Like, what? Eh. No. Because the brain picks that up regardless of what I was or wasn't saying. So think about your body language. Body language is a very powerful tool. We had body language before we had speech. And apparently 80% of what you understand in a conversation is read through the body, not the words. 80%. It's very important that you have a sense of presence with students. It's how you hold yourself. If you have a sense of presence, it will calm your students. Students will sense they are in good hands. So you, it's important that you use effective body language. Kids are going to be quicker to listen. So what are some nonverbal cues? So your posture and your emotional affect, the voice, the tone of your voice, will inform students on whether you like them, respect them, dread being in the room with them, and whether you think you can manage them. So it has nothing to do necessarily with what you say. But it's how you are non-verbally communicating to them. My computer just froze. Here we go. So your stance. 
The best stance you can use with an escalating student is what is called a five-point stance, and that's made up with a direct gaze. Use a voice of authority. That doesn't mean you're yelling, but you use a lower pitch. It's firm, but it's warm. So the five-point stance is um, that your face is facing the student, so not like this, and you're kind of looking out the corner of your eyes, but facing the student. Both your shoulders are facing the student, and both of your hips are facing the student, and your arms are at your side. That's the most non-threatening stance that you can have. This is a very threatening stance. Hands on the hip, or even one hand on the hip. Non-verbally, that is threatening to a student. You want to leave your hands here. Don't put them in your pockets because that's more of a casual and that's going to suggest that you're not serious. So if you're going to approach an escalating student, use this five-point stance. You want to use a voice of authority. Lower pitch, firm but warm. What I'd like you to do at your where you are today, just put your hand on your throat here and feel the difference between, just say a normal ping pong, ding dong, bing bong. Do you feel and hear the difference between bing bong versus ping pong? Ping pong's a higher, bing bong's a lower. And it's a firmer bing bong. This is where you want to be speaking is at that bing bong. So it takes a little bit of practice. You're not shouting, but that that place, bing bong, is a firmer sound. So avoid, rather, instead of avoid, a belligerent posture, a raging voice, a furious face, pounding on a desk, shaking a finger at someone's face. Those are signs that you are losing control. It's going to happen. It's happened to me. It's likely happened to you. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of self-talk to control your own flooding. Just know when it happens, you're flooding. And it's a natural reaction that we have to work at avoiding. Instead, you want to shift to an authority posture and assume a neutral expression, stop talking, and stop moving in the face of an escalating student. Here are the stages of escalation. I said that it's predictable. It is. An escalating student will go through these five stages. Sometimes they go through it very quickly. This is where you have to know your students well. Others can be at each stage for a small or a longer period of time. But a calm student, they're usually calm first. And you can recognize calm. But then they will quickly move into an anxious stage. From anxious, they go to anger. The student is already anger right around the corner is the hostility stage. The three main pieces or components to hostility 
is that the student will have a specific target, they will have a directed threat, and the means to carry it out. And that last one is whether you should take their threat seriously. So if they're threatening something they cannot carry out, then they're at the hostility stage. And we want to then back them up. And you back them up to dealing with the anger, to get them where they're more just anxious and dealing with the anxiety and so forth. Because the last stage is the stage we definitely want to avoid is the violence stage. So again, those are the five stages, and if you familiarize yourself with them and what and how to interpret what they are, you can determine where a student is in the escalating process. And the desire then is to be able to stop them there, because remember, it's not about being right, it's about being effective. So if you figure that a student is in the anger stage to try and identify what are they angry about, because you want to be effective. So it may feel like the kiddo is going to win, but indeed, you win, we win, if we can get them back to a non-angry stage. It's a different way of thinking and looking at it. So did you know that students and people don't just explode, rather they escalate in a roughly orderly fashion and you can de-escalate and avoid the explosion. You've got to believe that, and there's some tools to equip yourself with that I've shared with you. So first, calm yourself down. Use a calm, quiet voice. Use the five-point stance. Allow the student to seek a safe place. Sometimes this is a good time to let them be on a computer or on a device, because your, your goal to be effective is to get them calm down, back to a calm state. You might afford them the de-escalation. Remember those mirror neurons. At CLC, we, at El Belong, we place, a place for us to stand and to put our feet is in a strong belief that all behavior is communication. We believe that kids do well if they can. We believe that we would rather be right, we would rather, wait a minute, would you rather be right or effective? And we believe that we would rather be effective. There is, through Ross Green, what's called the collaborative problem solving system. You don't do this with small kids, you do this with the, the most complex kids. The website is Living in the Balance. If you want to know more about that, just Google Ross Green, the Collaborative Problem Solving System. Thank you for your time and your attention today, and I wish you the best as you work with those complex, challenging kids. Blessings. I'll be around for a little bit if anyone wants to come chat or ask a question. Thank you.